All right, so Revelation chapter 21. Let's go ahead and just read the first verse. It says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So right now we are to the new heaven and the new earth, and this is after the millennium. Now, one thing I want to just remind everybody of as we start this, when it comes to the new heaven and the new earth, when it comes to after the millennium, the Bible doesn't say a ton about it. And I'm going to show some examples too as we go through this where people get into some really dumb stuff when it comes to these things. You know, and whenever the Bible says little about a subject, you know, we should probably say little. Okay? The Bible says a lot about it, then we could say a lot. But if the Bible says little, we should say little. And many people will often take just you know little random passages and they'll just run with it and just create crazy doctrines. All right? And we don't want to do that. All right? That's the kind of thing we call ructardation around here. We don't want to do that. And you know, ructards, they're not the only ones that do this type of thing. But um, you know, other people do in fact I was just told there's you know, we we're talking about somebody this week who actually believes that the new heaven and new earth or the new Jerusalem is before the millennium. And I never even heard of anybody that believed that before. But as I was studying this, I saw a few verses. I think I could guess how they would try to make this be during the millennium. And because I, I went and I read through this again, and I'm thinking, how in the world could anyone try to make this, you know, before the millennium? And there's a few verses in there that I think people would probably use. And I have heard people speculate on these verses before. And the truth is. Once again, if the Bible says very little about it, we should say very little about it. But I'm going to give you what I think is you know, a really reasonable explanation uh, for some of these verses that kind of seem to conflict with the idea of this being after the millennium. I think there's no doubt what we're reading about here happens after the millennium. The new heaven and the new earth comes after the millennium. And so, notice how it mentions in that first verse that it says there's no more, there was no more sea. You know, what is the, the significance of other being no more sea. Well, I mean, I guess for one, if there was no oceans, you know, that's a lot more land, isn't it? That's a lot more people that you can fit on the planet if there's no oceans, all right? But really, what does that mean? You know, what is the significance? Why is it mentioning the no more sea? I, I actually think there, uh, there's a little more to it, but first off, I think it's in reference to the fact that the nations aren't going to be divided anymore. Because we're all going to be one people. Okay? We're all going to be one people. It was God's desire that we would all be one. Okay? Now, the, you know, the Ruckmanites, they teach that we're going to like just keep expanding and inhabiting other planets and stuff like that. You know, Sluter's got written in the notes in his Bible how, you know, we're going to inhabit other planets. You know, mostly the, mainly the Jews are going to be doing that. I mean, just real stupid stuff like that. That couldn't be any further from the truth. That's, that is an example of retardation right there. But there's going to be plenty of room on this earth for everyone to fit. You know, nobody needs to worry about that, especially when you consider the fact there's going to be no more seed. But um, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, it says, When the Most High divided the nation, to the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of Adam, He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So, when God separated the sons of Adam, that was after the Tower of Babel, notice how it mentions He set bounds. And I believe the seas were part of that. And one thing that we see back in the Old Testament 
it was very clear God wanted the nations to be separate. He didn't want them intermarrying with each other. He didn't want them uh, coming together. He ended up separating the nations like that. You know, now that kind of thing doesn't really matter. Now we're just trying to get the gospel to every creature. But the truth is, we do have many different nations now, don't we? But when the new heaven and the new earth comes, we will all be one people. And so I think that's why he's mentioning how there's no more seed. We're not going to have those divisions anymore. And there's a verse coming later where it mentions the nations again. But I'll show you what I believe that's talking about. So I personally think, you know, I don't know that this is saying there's not going to be um, any oceans anywhere, you know, or any bodies of water anywhere. There still could be some, just because I think when it's saying there's no more seas, it's just once again showing there's no divisions anymore. You know, it could be like we're going back to Pangea. All right, y'all remember Pangea, the supercontinent that you know they believe was there millions and millions of years ago. And obviously, I do believe that there was at one time one supercontinent. I just don't believe it was millions and millions of years ago. I think the flood uh, is what kind of changed all that. But we're probably going to go back to something like that. So, um, but this new earth, this new heaven, this or this new earth, this is not going to be like some new planet that's going to be made. It's going to be this planet. And there's a lot of scriptures we could cover on this. I'm just going to hit a few, but note in Ecclesiastes 1.4, it says, One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. Earth is always going to be here. This planet is not going anywhere. 2 Peter 3.6, and so look at, notice what it says here. It says, Whereby the world that was, uh, then was being overflowed with water perished. Okay? So notice how, you know, people say, well, you know, the Bible says, heaven and earth shall pass away. My word shall not pass away. Yeah, the earth is going to pass away. Yes, it says right here that, uh, you know, there's an, uh, the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Okay? But that doesn't mean that it's not this planet anymore. Okay? Because, for example, in, uh, in Genesis, when the flood came, the earth perished, didn't it? Okay? But, was it a new planet? After the waters went down? No, it was the same planet. However, the world as we know it changed, didn't it? In fact, it changed a lot. People went from living 900 and some years to, you know, only living around 100 years. Things were very different after the flood. Why? Because we kind of had a new earth. Alright? It was the same planet, but it was re, it was kind of, it was kind of remade. Our bodies, one of these days are going to pass away. What is it that we say when somebody passes away? Or when somebody dies, we say they passed away. But what does 1 Corinthians 15 teach? 1 Corinthians 15 teaches that it's this body that's going to resurrect one day. In fact, go ahead and turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And look at verse 35. It says, But some will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Now, I think this is a perfectly good question, but the Apostle Paul said, Thou fool, all right, after they asked that. I think he thought it was a dumb question. I've never totally understood why this is a dumb question. All right, I, I, it makes sense to me. But same, you know, we could say the same thing about the world. Well, it's going to pass away. There's going to be a new earth. So, what earth is it going to be? Is it going to be a new planet? Or is it going to be uh, this one redone? You know, thou fool, all right, you know. I think that's a good question too. But look what he says. 
Uh, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bear grain, it may chance of wheat or of some other grain. When you, when you bury a seed, is what you are expecting to get out of the ground that seed or something else? You're expecting something else, aren't you? But that seed goes in the ground, that seed dies, but then it ends up growing into a tree. It grows into a plant. Okay? That's what, that's what he's talking about right there. And it says in verse 38, But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased Him, and to every seed His own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, and another of fishes, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star deferreth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So now notice this. So we see kind of a principle here that what... What you originally have, what originally goes, dies and goes in the ground, okay, usually turns into something and, and it's always better, isn't it? What's better, the physical body or the spiritual body? Okay? The spiritual body's better. And so, you know, what's better, a seed or a tree? Okay? Obviously, the tree is better. But all of these things, they are one thing, but you take that one thing and it dies and then it becomes something even better. Well, I believe it's going to be the same thing with earth. You know, this earth, there's a lot of different kind of seeds. There's a lot of different kind of bodies. And you know what? You could say that this earth is a seed in a sense. And one of these days, it's going to die. It's going to be destroyed by fire. But then, it's going to be remade. And the one that's going to be remade is one that's going to last forever. Okay? You know, the scientists would tell you that, you know, this planet can't last for eternity. You know, eventually the sun's going to burn out or whatever. Well, okay, yeah, I would agree with that. The way things are right now, it can't go on for eternity, okay? Just like our bodies can't go on for eternity in their present condition. But when they die and they're raised a glorified body, it will go on for eternity, won't it? And whatever this happens to this earth after it dies, it will be something, it will be remade into something that will go on forever. So, don't worry about the sun burning out and things like that, you know, in the new heaven and new earth. Okay? This earth is going to be here forever. It's not, it's not going away. So, and there's a lot, there's, there are many scriptures about, you know, the earth abiding forever. This, this earth is always going to be here. It's not going anywhere. So look at verse 2. It says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So, New Jerusalem. It doesn't show up during the millennium. It shows up after the millennium. Okay, And it's real obvious, too, that we're after the millennium. Just when you go and you look at uh, Revelation chapter 20, and you'll notice you know, the details of what it covers there. I mean, we're at the end of the millennium there. It's been talking about the great white throne. Okay? At the end of chapter 20, it tells us about the great white throne and it talks about death and hell being cast into the lake of fire. It talks about the dead. 
standing before God at that great white throne. And then after we read about that, then it tells us about the new heaven and the new earth. And then it talks about the new Jerusalem. And it's very clear when we're in this new heaven and new earth, there's no more death. Well, if death does not get cast into the lake of fire until after the millennium, then we have to be after the millennium right here. That's why I just I don't understand how somebody can get you know Revelation twenty one and put it before the millennium and put New Jerusalem any of this before the millennium. I think I think that's pretty foolish. But uh, but anyway, so in verse three it says, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Okay? So those things are done. The death, the sorrow, the crying. How could those things be done before the lake of, you know, the great white throne of judgment? Okay? All these things have to come after the great white throne of judgment. There's gonna have to be some tears wiped away at the great white throne of judgment. So there's no doubt about it. We are after the millennium right here. And notice how it mentions how God Himself shall be with them and shall be their God. It's after the millennium when we will finally get to lay eyes on God the Father. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay, because what is the point of the millennium? What is the point? And I could probably preach a whole message just on this and we just don't have time tonight. But you know, what is the point of the millennium? Well, the point of the millennium is there's a lot of prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. There's a lot of promises that need to be fulfilled. There's a lot of things that have never been accomplished, things that have never been done. There's never been a righteous government. We've never had you know that uh, a lot of those things. And Jesus Christ is going to bring those things. This is when He's going to fulfill you know some of these promises that He made to the Jews back in the Old Testament. And the Jews that are going to receive those promises are going to be the ones that God promised them to back in the Old Testament. It's going to be them after they've resurrected. Okay, The promises of the Jews is not being fulfilled right now and didn't start getting fulfilled in 1948 when they started reclaiming the land. The promise was not to the seed physically. It was to the seed spiritually. And you all, you all know that. But look at verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says... For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Now let me stop here for a second. How many have ever heard of like the... Uh, I think it's the post-millennial crowd. All right, the post-millennialists, millennialists, they believe that basically Christ is going to return after we, as believers, we pretty much take over this world with Christianity. Once we, as a people, can succeed and just you know winning the world and you know establishing that righteous government, then Jesus Christ is going to come back. Okay, now first off. That's really stupid, but where do they get that from? All, right? All false doctrine comes from somewhere. Okay, They've got some verse, they've got some place in the Scriptures they can go to. Well, here's the thing. Yes, 
there does need to be a fulfillment of a righteous government. That needs to happen. Okay? Just like there needed to be payment for sin. Okay? But who did the payment for sin? Jesus did the payment for sin. Okay? There did need to be somebody that would obey the law and keep the law. And there was somebody that obeyed and kept the law, and it was Jesus Christ. There does need to be somebody that establishes righteousness and rules this world in righteousness. And guess what? Guess who is going to do that? It's going to be Jesus that does that too. Okay? Just like Jesus did all the work for our salvation, He was the only one that could do it. Jesus Christ is the only one that can rule this world in righteousness. He's the only one that will be able to have the power to take over this world. And that is exactly what He's going to do. So the post-millennial view is, is just foolish. All right? We can't fulfill that. Jesus has to be the one to fulfill that. So when He comes, He's going to come and He's going to put down all rule and all authority and all and power. For He must reign till He hath put all enemies under His feet. Okay? Look at this. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For He hath put all things under His feet, but when He saith all things are put under Him, it is manifest that He is accepted which did put all things under Him. And when all things shall be subdued unto Him, then shall the Son also Himself be subject unto Him that put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. So notice here how Jesus Christ, He's got to rule till all of His enemies have been destroyed. When did death get defeated? Or when did it get destroyed? At the great white throne of judgment, right? At the end of chapter 20. So now we're in chapter 21. And we have the new heaven and the new earth. And we have now all of a sudden God dwelling on earth with man. Okay, But Jesus has already been dwelling on earth for the thousand years, hasn't He? But now we have God Himself. Why? Because after Jesus has put all rule and all authority under Him, He is going to, go, he is going to deliver the kingdom to the Father and He is going to be subject to Him. That's what the Bible teaches. And it's Tyler Baker that teaches that the new heaven and new earth or the new Jerusalem is you know, at the, you know, during the millennium. And the reason for that is because he's got a big problem when all of a sudden we know Jesus has been here a thousand years in the millennium, but then after the new heaven and new earth, it's like, and God Himself will be with them. All of a sudden now, you see once again the distinction between the Father and the Son. Since He sees no distinction then he has to make this about, you know, it has to be, you know, before the millennium or during the millennium. And that's just stupid. It's very clear in the Bible that after Jesus Christ defeats everything, after he accomplishes everything, all rule, all authority, after he destroys death, then the kingdom is going to go to the Father and Jesus Christ is going to subject himself to the Father. And so that's why we see here it mentioning how God Himself should be with them. Because now God the Father is with us. We are going to get to see His face at this point, but not until after the millennium. This right here is just one more thing that just destroys you know, this modalist teaching. It absolutely blows it out of the water. And that's why they've got to just mangle their timeline of Revelation because... If they don't, if, if, you know, if, if our timeline's right, and it is, then all of a sudden their oneness doctrine has just gone down the toilet. And 
good news. All right, it's already been flushed. All right, but anyway, uh, where was I? So verse five says, "And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new." And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So making all things new. What, what does that mean? Alright? Does it mean, once again, new is in the sense of different? Okay, for example, if I said, you know what, I got new shoes, you would assume I got different shoes, right? I got, I got, a, I would have a different pair of shoes. Or if I, if I said, I got a new shirt, you would say, assume it was different from the one I had before. But actually, when it's talking about him, God making all things new, it doesn't mean something different or something else. He's just making the things that are new. Okay. Another. So let me illustrate it this way. All right. You know, how many of you ever bought that new package of T-shirts, and you know you laid that new T-shirt next to your old T-shirt? Okay. There's usually a huge difference in the color, right? Why? Because you know that old one. You know, no matter how many times you wash it, it's never going to get that original whiteness. It's never going to get that original look. Okay, it, you, you just you can't do it. But listen, when God makes things new, when God touches something, when you know, for example, Naaman the Syrian, we looked at him when he dipped in the Jordan River seven times. Remember, his skin it, it was. It was perfect. It was completely whole. It was like new. In other words, so when the Bible says He's going to make all things new, God's going to put it back in its original condition. Okay. So imagine I had a washing machine where instead of just you know you replacing those t-shirts, I could wash that t-shirt and it be like it was originally. You know, wouldn't that be nice to have one of those? I could make some money with that. Well, thing is, God's not going to be making just brand new things as in different things. He's going to be making the things that were like new. And they, they will be new because He's fixed them. He's got them back in their original condition. So in verse 6, He says, And He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. Alright? So now I want you to notice something here in uh, verse 5 and 6. Now I've heard people too that want to teach multiple ways of salvation and things like that. They'll, they'll take verses from Revelation 21 and 22 and they often put them in the wrong place. Okay? They'll put some, some of these verses that we're seeing here are in the future, after the millennium, but you're going to notice he kind of goes back to speaking in the present. You're going to, we're going to see this a lot. In the next two chapters, all right. So notice how in verse one through four, this is all future. This is all after the millennium. God's going to wipe away all tears from their eyes. All right. So now in verse five, he says, "And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new.' And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful." So is this future or was this present time for John? This right here was present time for John. Okay, and he's he's telling him to write. All right, this is this is something I want you to write right now. And then he said, and he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. This is something that applies to us now. Okay, we take the water of life now by having faith in Jesus Christ. He gives us that water of life 
freely. I've heard some people say, you know, in order to have eternal life during this time, you got to take the fountain water of life. You know, you got to drink the water. It's like, no, actually, this applies to right now. It's it's real clear. In verse seven, it says, "He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my people." So they'll take this verse too. Say, you've got to overcome. You know, in order to be saved during this time, you've got to overcome. You're going to have to do some things. But one thing that they never do, they never compare Scripture with Scripture. They'll take this one verse where it says, overcome. They make it about something in the future. And this isn't about the future. This isn't the present. Alright, this is for us. If we will overcome, we will inherit all things. But how do we overcome? Okay, the way we find out how we overcome is comparing Scripture with Scripture. What did John say in 1 John 5, 4? For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So right that that's how we overcome. And it's verses like this that people will take and they'll, you know, you'll have the work salvation crowd. They'll take this one verse right there and they'll say, you have to overcome. And, you know, and whenever people do that, say, well, can you please tell me how I overcome? And, and they're probably going to tell you, you know, you got to keep commandments, you got to, you know, whatever it is that they're wanting to teach you at that time. You know, if it's a Ruckmanite, they're going to tell you that you've got to take the water of life. You've got to go and get that water that comes from the throne and you've got to drink it in order to be saved. No, actually, Jesus told the woman of the well, you know, he was the water of life. And this is actually, this is not something for the future. This is something that God told John to write during that present time. This was a message for us. This was a message for those seven churches that John was writing to. And he was telling them, hey, if you'll overcome, you'll inherit all things. And the way they overcame is by believing that Jesus is the Son of God. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. When you and I preached through this before I preached the message a while back, where I looked at we looked at all these examples where it says, "To him that overcometh, to him that overcometh," uh, in chapters two and three of Revelation. And when you compare Scripture with Scripture, every one of those examples, every I mean, every single time, it's clear that the way we overcome for salvation is it, through faith in Jesus Christ. He does those things. If there is a work that's involved that needs to be done in order to overcome, Jesus did that work for us. And so we overcome by believing on Him. And when you look at these verses in context, it's, it is really frustrating when you hear people try to spin the Scriptures that way. It's, it's just horrible that people do that. And people do anything to, to teach a work salvation. So, verse 8. So let's wait. Look at verse 7 again. It says, So he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Alright? Now, this, once again, we're in present time. Alright? This is present. This is for us right now. This was in John's time. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. I've already proved the way you overcome is by believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 8. Okay? The work salvation crowd, the Tyler Dokas, they take verse 8 and they make it a work salvation. Look what it says, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters 
and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Okay, now let me point out one thing. One, this also proves we're in present time. If this was something in the future, all right, death and hell's already been cast in the lake of fire. There is no more death. All right, the Bible spelled that out for us. During the new heaven and the new earth time, there is no more death. So nobody's going to get cast in the lake of fire in the new heaven and new earth. All right, I think we would all, I think everybody would have to agree with that. All right, so once again, this is more proof that we're back to present time when he's writing this. Okay, so what the you know the Tyler Dokas will do it says have their part in the lake of fire, which means you know we all have to take part of it. You're going to do your time, whatever. You know that that is just foolish on so many levels. All right. Those of us who are saved, we have eternal life. The lake of fire is the second death. For you, If you spend one second in the lake of fire, then that means for one second you did not have life. Therefore, that eternal life was not eternal. Okay, But what do they do? What do the works, crowd, works salvation crowd do? They say, well, if you've been a warmonger, if you've been an idolater, if you've told a lie, you're going to have your part well, unless I overcome, alright, I don't have to have my part in the lake of fire if I overcome those things. But how do I overcome? Do I overcome all these things by not doing them? Or do we overcome by faith in Jesus Christ? We overcome by faith in Jesus Christ. Because while we've done some of these things, Jesus Christ never did do any of these things, did He? And so, a person who dies without Christ, without the gift of salvation, without imputed righteousness, guess what? They are guilty of these things. Those of us who have received imputed righteousness and have trusted Christ, we have been cleansed from these things. We have been washed from these things. Therefore, we cannot be held accountable for these things. We cannot be called these things. And so, we will stand before God clean one of these days because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible gives... So, I mean, there's so many verses about the blood. And that's why we sing about the blood because the blood is what covers our sins. The blood is why we can say we are not these things. Why we are not guilty of these things. And it's like people forget that. And, you know, and, I, and listen, we do need to keep on preaching that saved people should not do these sins. We need to keep on preaching that. We need to keep encouraging people not to do that. But why do we preach that? Because if, if you're saved, why do we teach that you shouldn't sin? Well, there's a whole lot of reasons. One, it's a bad testimony when you do sin. It grieves the Holy Spirit of God when you sin. And you'll get punishment on this earth when you sin. But when you sin, it does not change the fact that you receive the gift of eternal life, that you have imputed righteousness, that the blood of Christ cleanses from all sins, it doesn't change any of that. And so we need to, we, when we understand that, we can understand why, and we can get up and we can confidently say that, yeah, I've told a lie before, but I'm not a liar. Not in the eyes of God. Because I overcame. And I did not overcome by, because I never told a lie. I did not overcome by that. I overcame by believing that Jesus is the Son of God by trusting in Him. And that can be proved so many ways on so many different levels. This is just a classic example of people just taking Scriptures and making it mean what they want it to mean 
And people who preach work salvation, they're just not saved. And they are going to go to the lake of fire. No doubt about that. So look at verse um, 9. And there came one of the seven angels who had seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. All right. Now this is where people ought to go to figure out who the bride is. Okay. Now if you want to go to a Baptist Brider Church and find out who the bride is, they're going to probably take you to Ephesians. They're going to... Uh, Take you the Bible where it says, you know, husbands love your wife even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And they're going to talk about a church is a called out assembly of baptized believers and you got to be, have the right kind of baptism by immersion by a Baptist and otherwise you're not really the church. You know, and they teach all this goofy landmarkism is another term for it. But you know, you would think people instead of going to Ephesians 6 that is not an explanation of or, um, it's not an explanation of the bride or of the church. It's just giving an example of how husbands ought to love their wives. That's what it's about. It's, a, it's, a, it's teaching husbands how to love their wives that you'd think they would go to Revelation 21 when you have an angel say, let me show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. But we can't. the reason they don't do that is because if you go here, it destroys their Baptist brider doctrine. And it also destroys a lot of dispensational teaching on the two peoples of God. Alright, but look what it says in verse 10. And He carried me away into the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like jasper stone, clear as crystal. And it had a, great, and it had a wall great and high and had twelve gates and the at the gates, twelve angels, the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Now, that's interesting right there. This city, right? and some people say that the bride is the city. Well, okay, yeah, that's fine, but the thing is, what makes the city a city? All right? It's the inhabitants that make the city. It's the people that's the city. And I understand he's looking at a physical city here, but... I don't believe it's the you know the physical location that makes it the city. I, I makes you the bride. I believe it's being the people that it's the people that make up the bride. But it's, uh, but notice that in this city, okay, it has on the twelve gates the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now I think that's pretty significant, right? So would, would it be safe to say that? If you have these gates with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, that we would include the Old Testament saints of Israel as being inhabitants of that city. I mean, you've got the names of the twelve tribes on the gates, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. That's interesting too because you know, while we might not necessarily identify with the twelve tribes, we do identify with the twelve apostles, don't we? And notice how we're going to be we're going to be in the same city. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter two. Now this remind this reminds me here of what we see in Ephesians chapter two. This is also another extremely ignored passage of scripture by the dispensationalists. And for good reason. It's right after, for by grace are ye saved, 
But look what it says. This is very similar to what we see. So we have a city that has 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. It has 12 foundations which are the names of the 12 apostles. Okay, Now that would make me think the inhabitants are the Old Testament saints of Israel and the New Testament saints, us. Right? It looks like one, it's one city. looks like we're all going to be one people. Look what it says in Ephesians 2.11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, we used to be Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands. All right? The circumcision or the Jews, they called you the uncircumcision that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for He is our peace, who hath made both one. Who's the both? Alright? Jew and Gentile. He's made them both one by the blood. Um, and hath broken down the middle wall partition between us having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers, and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. You know what it's teaching here in Ephesians chapter 2? It's teaching that we as New Testament believers, as Gentile believers, we are built, uh, we are a part of the same building as those from the Old Testament. And is that not exactly what we see in the New Jerusalem? It's the exact same thing. Why? Because it's all one city. We are all one people. Okay, you know, the Baptist briders think it's just going to be the Baptist in the New Jerusalem, you know, the dispensationalists probably think it's just going to be the Jews in the New Jerusalem. I don't know, who knows? But all the saved are part of the bride. Everyone who has ever been saved is all going to be a part of this. We are all one body. Jesus Christ made one sacrifice, one covenant got people into heaven, and it wasn't the old covenant. All right, the old covenant. That vanished. It's gone. The new covenant is what gets people into heaven. Everyone who is going to be in heaven one day is there because of the new covenant, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And everyone is the bride. There is not one bride for Jesus and another bride for God the Father. That is heresy. That is just absolute garbage. And uh, we ought to reject that. Ephesians 2 destroys that teaching. And Revelation 21 destroys that teaching. So let's keep going. Verse 15, And he had talked to me at a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square. And the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. 
And he measured the wall thereof, a hundred and forty-four cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. Now, I've heard people say before too, why do you think they built the wall? You know, you'll build a wall to keep people out. So therefore, there's got to be somebody to keep out. Okay, let's keep reading. It says, The foundation of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth the sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh the chrysolite, the eighth the beryl, the ninth the topaz, the tenth the chrysophorus, the eleventh the jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. So let me stop right here. All right, but first off, let me tell you why there's, you know, walls don't necessarily mean it's keeping people out. Because there's gates, 12 of them, three in each direction, and they're always open. All right, so just, you know, that's, you know, what's the point of a gate? You can't. You, know, you, you use, do have a gate to keep people out, but these ones are always open. All right. But first off, all right. Now I hate to, I hate to ruin any songs. I hate to ruin any thoughts. All right. I hate to ruin any preaching that you've ever heard. All right. Now I, I'm sure I, I know I've said this many times, but have you ever heard, you know, at a funeral, you know, brother so and so, he's seen the Lord now. He's entered those gates of pearl. He's walked those streets of gold. Meaning heaven, right? Well, did you know the only place where we see streets of gold and gates of pearl is in the New Jerusalem? All right, the Bible doesn't really, teach, you know, it doesn't teach the pearly gates in heaven. You know, we're supposed to see meet St. Peter at the pearly gates and all that. The, that's in the New Jerusalem. All right, the streets of gold. Could there be streets of gold in heaven? There might be. Alright, but I don't see it in the Bible. I only see it in New Jerusalem. So, you know, that loved one may not have walked the streets of gold yet. Alright? I hate to ruin anything for anybody. They've seen Jesus, that's good enough. Okay, so, but, you know, all the songs, it's, it's amazing how much bad theology we've gotten in our head from songs. Okay, it just, it happens, but I'm not gonna beat somebody up for that. Alright, next time I'm at a funeral, somebody's saying that, I'm not gonna scream heretic. When it does that, all right, it's all right, if they're in heaven, they eventually will walk streets of gold. They eventually will enter gates of pearls. So, uh, but I like how it says, "And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it." There is no place for us to go make sacrifice and things like that. Jesus Christ did all that. Jesus Christ, he he is the he is the temple. So, um, says. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Okay, now remember, we're talking specifically about the city right here. This isn't talking about the rest of the earth. Okay, and it does, this verse doesn't teach that there is no sun or that there is no moon. It's just teaching they're not needed in this city because this city, it's got its own light. Alright, so I do believe that the sun and the moon are always going to be around too. But in the New Jerusalem, you're not going to need it. Okay, There's not going to be any night time. So verse 24, So th and this is one of the verses people use to make it like this is something in the, in the millennium 
Or you can have people too that will just come up with crazy theories. But notice what it says. It says, "...and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it." Whoa, notice that. It says, "...the nations of them which are saved." Well, wouldn't that have to mean there's some nations that aren't saved? So what are these nations that are not saved during the new heaven and the new earth? You know, notice it says the kings of the earth are going to bring their glory and honor into it. What does that mean? Alright? Well, here's what I think it means. I don't think it mean, I don't think this is something that's like constantly happening throughout the new heaven and new earth. What I think is the nations that are saved, okay? Those people are going to be on earth when the new Jerusalem comes down. And you know what they're going to do? They are going to walk in the light of it. They're going to bring their glory and honor into it. Okay? So the nations that are, so what about the ones that aren't saved? They will have just been thrown into the lake of fire. After they get thrown into the lake of fire, all of a sudden it's all done. The new heaven and the new earth, it comes down. And then the nations of those that are saved, they're going to see it. And I'm, I, don't, I don't know where I'm going to be during the millennium, but I can promise you, when the New Jerusalem comes down, guess where I'm going to go make a trip to? Right? I'm making a trip to New Jerusalem. All right? So I don't think, you know, this, this isn't teaching us like a, uh, or telling us a practice that's going to be going on for all eternity during that time. So don't we, we're not going to teach about these other civilizations. They're going to be around during that time. No, this is just a re- <clears throat> this is something that's going to happen at the beginning when that new Jerusalem comes down. Guess where everyone is going to go on vacation that first year? They're all going to New Jerusalem. I promise. I'll I'm going to get there as quick as I can, and we'll bring our glory and honor to it. You know, well, who, and who are these kings? You know, are these kings that are kings from there on out during that time? Or is this a reference to the kings? Because remember, during the millennial reign, Jesus Christ, you know, there was though um, we're going to rule and reign with him, right? So after the new Jerusalem comes down, are we still going to have ranks and positions and things like that? I don't know. We can only speculate on that. But I think these kings that it's talking about are the ones that God put in charge, who ruled on the earth with Christ during the millennial reign. Those people and whoever they're in charge of, you know, if I'm in charge of some people, if I have some cities, when that starts happening, I'm going to tell the town, hey, guess what, folks? We're all going to make a pilgrimage to the New Jerusalem. We're going to check this out, and we're going to come, and we're going to uh, we're going to go and check the city out. And so that's what this is talking about. This isn't just some practice that's going on throughout eternity. This is an event. This is something that's going to happen when the New Jerusalem shows up. So verse um, 25, And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they that are written in the Lamb's book of life. So once again, the fact that none of these things are going in it, this does not mean that there are some things that work in abomination outside these walls. No. Those things were just destroyed. Those things were just defeated. Those things were just cast into the lake of fire in the last chapter. In chapter 20, we see the end of everything that's bad. And right here, we're seeing kind of the end or the new beginning 
of those that are good, those that those who are saved. So this there's not going to be anything on the earth that make the abomination during that time that the city keeps out. No, those things just got destroyed. They just got taken care of. We don't have to worry about anything bad going in the city. It's all been defeated. It's all been destroyed. And so now we're going to go and we're going to visit the city. And so it's going to be those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's the saved who are going to be uh, who are going to go there during that time. So you know the weird teachings that you get from this is really just it comes from bad reading is what it comes from. It just comes from weird speculation. It comes from just inserting things into the scripture. If you just read the passage for what it says, you know it's it's actually pretty simple. But people like to complicate it, just come up with weird theories. And you know, and I like speculating and imagining, but you know, at, at the end of the day. After the new Jerusalem, after the new heaven and new earth, you know what? Are, what are we going to do for eternity? I don't know. Okay, but I can promise you this: there are not going to be any abominations in the earth, right? Because there's not going to be any more sin. There's not going to be any more sickness. There's not going to be death, sorrow, crying, pain. Okay, the former things are passed away. Those things are done. They're gone, and nothing that you see in this passage gives any indication that there will be some of these things during that time. It's referring to those things and it's excluding those things not because they are there in that present time. No, it's excluding those things because those things literally just got their end. They just got their end at the great white throne. As soon as the great white throne is done, here comes the new Jerusalem and all that's going to be there is good. There is going to be no bad and there will not be any bad anywhere on the earth during that time. And so after once it starts, you know, we can only speculate, we can only guess, we can only imagine, but there will be nothing bad. There is no doubt about that. There will be no more people going to hell. No one else cast the lake of fire. There will be no more death. Absolutely none of that. And so, you know, any potential problems, you know, you know, they'll talk about the you know, leaves of the tree of life. And uh, like Revelation 22.2 says, you know, in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there a tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Alright? It's like, oh wow, so since the nations need healed, that must, means, that must mean there's actual problems. Well, I mean, not really when you consider the fact that, you know, there's these leaves that heal the nations. Alright? So if we've got something, if there is some kind of potential problem and you have a cure all ready to go, then it's not really a problem, is it? You know, you know what I'm saying? And so it's just weird speculation stuff that people come with. And it's amazing how people use this passage many times or this chapter, verses from it, to teach a work salvation. And when you actually look at these things in context, you'll find out that is just a bunch of foolishness. What we're seeing here in chapter 21, the millennium is done. Jesus Christ has put down all rule and all authority. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is destroyed at the end of the millennium at the great white throne of judgment. Now that, now that that has been destroyed, we have New Jerusalem coming down and we have God the Father Himself now coming and dwelling with us. We will get to see His face at that point. And the very fact 
that this is after the millennium, the very fact that now it's mentioning God is dwelling with us is just one more thing that just proves modalism is garbage. And that's why, I mean, Baker literally has to just twist the Scriptures beyond recognition to uh, teach that the New Jerusalem is here during the millennium. That, that just proves desperation. This is the type of thing you have to go to. This is a classic example of what happens when you get, when you get one thing wrong in your doctrine. Okay? Here's what, and we all get things wrong sometimes. Okay? But here's what most of us do when we get something wrong. You know what we do when we get something wrong? We fix it. Alright? Oh, I was wrong. I'll fix that. What other people do, they get one thing wrong and then they get stubborn and they refuse to fix it which forces them to start changing a bunch of other things too. And it's just like the illustration I used with the guitar that's out of tune. You get one string out of tune, it just destroys the song. I can either fix the one string or I can tune all the other strings to make it match the one that's out of tune. But now I've got six strings out of tune. And that is what dispensationalism is. That's what, that's what modalism does. And it literally just changes everything in the Bible when you get those key things wrong. And when you get it right, everything starts making sense. That's why Revel, that's why you, you won't hear, you never hear pre-trib pastors, never, preach an expository, an actual expository message through the book of Revelation, chapter by chapter. They can't do it. They've got too many strings out of tune. But whenever you get the, whenever you figure out it's post-trib, when you get Israel figured out, all of a sudden now, you got your one string that's out of tune, and now things harmonize. They can't do that because there's just too many conflicts. But we can. We can preach chapters 1 through 22 and not worry about one thing get messed up because our strings are in tune. And so that's why if you get something wrong, just own up to it, admit it, and fix it. So I hope that was helped you. But let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for. Uh, the, the clarity of the Scripture, Lord, and I just pray You'll help us, to, uh, uh, Lord, to look forward to this day and uh, let these verses be a comfort to us, uh, knowing that a lot of all these problems that are on this earth will one day be gone. We're looking forward to that day, and dear God, I just pray You'll help us to uh, tell people about this right now while we've got a chance to keep them from ever having to go into hell to the lake of fire. In Your name we pray. Amen.